Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And this is the word of the Lord. It's been a while since I've uh, been on an airplane, maybe two years yeah, I think it was about two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, we have any frequent flyers? Anybody a frequent flyer? Or you've been a frequent flyer before? No? Looks like, oh, kind of. How many of you love flying on airplanes? How many of you hate flying on airplanes? Without kids, right? That's a whole other experience. Now, how many of you are a little fearful of flying through the sky in a giant tube with rockets strapped to it? I see a few hands. Right, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure if I trust this so much, right? So you have frequent flyers, and you have what we'll call fearful flyers, right? But not fearful in a bad way, more of a sober-minded, vigilant flyer. Because you know, when you get on the plane, you, you look around, and what's everybody doing? Headphones go on, laptops come out, magazines are pulled out, and the stewardess gets up to give her, in the event of an emergency speech, and everybody's, you know, down doing their thing. But we all can look around and see that one person, and maybe that's one of you, who's got the instruction manual out, and they're paying attention, they're looking at the exits, right? They're reinforcing what the stewardess tells the people in the exit row, like, you know what you're doing, right? And they're looking at, okay, my, my seat is a flotation device in the, in, in the unlikely event of a water cr in a crash, okay, but I'm going to be ready. They're the one who is intently listening to the instructions with the safety manual in hand. You know, we always tend to make fun of them, though, or maybe feel a little bit sorry for them. These fearful flyers are people who pay such close attention to the warnings of the stewardess and the instructions of what to do in the event of an emergency, and we usually label them fearful or uncompetent. Frequent flyers like to say to them, chill, chill out, man. Just trust the pilot. Right? We've done this before. Pilot's got me. You know, frequent flyers tend to get very annoyed at fearful flyers. When fearful flyers are the only ones paying attention. They get really frustrated if that fearful flyer has the audacity to kind of nudge them and say, hey, maybe you should pay attention as well. We like to say that um, fearful flyers are legalistic, not gospel-centered, or maybe ungracious. But experienced frequent flyers put their headphones on right away, looking at their laptop or phone or the magazine. They've done this before a million times. The childlike excitement, pure joy, and fearful wonder of flying at 30,000 feet above the earth at speeds up to 600 miles an hour in a bus with wings and rockets welded to them, that's just lost on them. That's, they've done that before. They get so tired of hearing the same warnings over and over again in the event of an emergency. Oh, I've heard this before. Frequent flyers wish that the stewardess would just lighten up a bit. That stewardess makes me feel uneasy. It's like she's talking to me or something. Frequent flyers like the stewardesses who are just cool and give the event, in the event of an emergency sermon, I mean speech with lots of jokes and relatable stories that put them at ease about their flight. 
When that stewardess who takes their job seriously starts talking, frequent flyers usually just put on their headphones and listen to reckless love. Let me read an email of one such frequent flyer. Air quotes for those who will be listening later. An email from a frequent flyer. Not really, but kind of. One time, a stewardess who takes their job very seriously saw that I was wearing my headphones during the, in the event of an emergency sermon, I mean speech, and actually said something from the pulpit, I mean from the front of the plane, about people not wearing headphones during the, in the event of an emergency sermon, I mean speech. Even though there were others wearing their headphones, I knew that she was talking about me. And the last straw was when she had the audacity to come to my seat and privately ask me to take off my headphones so that I could properly hear the instructions. She said that this is what the airline required that she do, and they and she had my best interest in mind. But I felt attacked, and I decided that I would no longer be bullied like that. It's okay, though. I got through that experience I'm no longer flying with that airline. I'm a frequent flyer. Lighten up. There's such a lack of grace at that other airline. But I find a different one where the stewardess is less of a rule follower and more gospel-centered, I mean, has more people's best interest at mind. And in fact, they do the, of the, in the event of an emergency speech, when they do that, they're real cool with me not following the instruction manual. They say I'm cool because I told them I was a frequent flyer and they just believed me. This airline puts me at ease. Flying with them has been such a refuge. I mean, a restful time for me. I mean, come on. I'm a frequent flyer. I've done this before a million times and nothing has ever happened. I mean, people act like flying could be life and death or something like that. Anyway, I'm much happier with this airline. P.S., they put these really cool magazines with life tips and stuff in the back of the seat back pocket, along with the instruction manual, and I just read those now. Grace and peace, frequent flyer. You get the point, right? You get the point. Pastor Rusty's last two sermons in Hebrews are warnings for us to pay attention to And to not be unwise in thinking that since we have done this before, we are in no way in danger of falling away. I just now started my timer, by the way, so you're in trouble, all right? I'll take that as an affirmation that I can preach long. Why do fearful flyers pay attention? Why do they listen to the in the event of an emergency speech and pay close attention to the instruction manual to obey the rules because in the event of an emergency, they don't want to die and they want to get to their destination. They want to get home. And in the same way, as we heed the instructions of the author of Hebrews to us, we want to do that so that we will as well get home. So welcome to CTL Airlines Flight 4611. Please pull out your instruction manuals and follow along. Don't miss the, um, don't miss the point of Hebrews, okay? You, um, you know, on your uh, Google map or um, on your app, when, when you're kind of following really close to where you're at and you can push the button and it zooms back out and kind of shows you the big picture of where you're at, you have to continue to do that in the book of Hebrews. Pastor Russ and I were talking about this um, on cold pizza um, this past week about not getting so down in the weeds that you miss the big picture, okay? Now, there's some confusion at times around the book of Hebrews, and some of you are in danger of making these mistakes. Some of you are in danger of missing the point of Hebrews because you don't understand the text, right? Which is understandable because we're diving deep into it. I listened to a sermon from Pastor John Piper on the text that I am preaching today, and he said that these are some of the most misunderstood and hard to preach uh, scriptures in all the Bible. And I was like, oh, gee, thanks. That's why um, they gave it to me, I guess. Not because I'm good at it, but because I'll fumble through it. Or I'm dumb enough to take it, maybe. <laughs> I see what you guys are doing. But the, the danger there is, is I'm confused, so I'm just not going to try. 
So don't be intellectually lazy, okay? You can't Jesus take the wheel yourself out of this, okay? Apply yourself. Engage your mind. Get yourself a good study Bible commentary. Ask questions. Lean into it. Step closer to the painting to see the details, okay? Another danger that you could fall into is getting so far down into the details that you miss the big picture. And, and what we're going to do here in the next coming verses this morning is the author is going to kind of mix paints together. And even if you're just a finger, art, a finger paint artist, you know how that if you miss this, mix this color with this color, you get that color. And that's what he's kind of doing. He's taking these colors and he's blending them together and he's talking about this big idea of rest to paint this grander, more vibrant picture of Jesus, Right? If you get confused about what Hebrews is about, or if you're like, I'm not really sure how this applies, go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 and read what the author has intended us to understand from this letter. Jesus is superior to all things. That's what we just sang. Jesus is better. All through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is Better, go back and see Jesus as the last prophet, the great high priest, and the king of kings. Don't get so down into the paint mixing that you miss the big picture, okay? There's a third danger here, and this is the most important. One that would understand what the word of God says, and yet do nothing with it. And this is a danger we are all in this morning. That you would hear the word of God, that you would understand the word of God, and yet you would do nothing with it. Above all, don't be that person. So he's been talking about this rest. Pastor Russ touched on this the last two weeks. Well, we heard the scripture read this morning. What's he talking about when he talks about this rest? He's taking these different colors and he's blending them together. Or maybe another way to describe this is, you know what a Venn diagram is, right? Where these circles come together and kind of overlap and intertwine. It's kind of in the same way that uh, they symbolize the Trinity, these things kind of coming together in different ways. That's what the author is doing with these ideas of rest, okay? They're going to interchange and overlap with each other at different places, but he's trying to build a grander, paint a bigger, more beautiful picture for us this morning. This picture Jesus is better. So we're going to step real close into looking at what the different paint colors are. And say, if you blend this color with this one, that makes this. And then we're going to step back and say, look at Jesus. And then we're going to step closer and we're going to look. And then we're going to step back and say, look at Jesus. Okay? That's what we're going to do as we walk through the continuance of our series in Hebrews in particular today. So he's talking about a couple different types of rest. He mentions a promised land rest. He mentions a Sabbath rest, in particular the Sabbath rest that God enjoyed after creation. And he also then mentions kind of a future rest, and he's blending all these things together, all right? Let's talk about this promised land rest, promised land rest. And we've already seen this mentioned in chapter 3. Pastor Russ has alluded to this. In our verses in 6 and 8 today, he's talking about this promised land rest. We've already heard these warnings that we would not be like that rebellious generation who, because of their rebellion, was not allowed to enter into the promised land rest. If you have read the Old Testament or you remember our series in Joshua, you will know that God did keep his promise. He kept his promise that he made to the rebellious generation, and they did not enter, and he kept his promise to give his people a land of rest because that next generation crossed into the Jordan, um, across the Jordan into the land and possessed it. All of the Bible reminds us that God does what he says he will do. You can bank on it. In Joshua, in the end, in chapter 21, thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give their fathers, and they took possession of it. And if you jump down to verse 45, it says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. He said it would happen, and it happened. Pastor Russ reminded us, a promise is a promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps it, all right? He made this promise to allow his people to enter into this land of rest, and he also made a promise that that rebellious generation would not enter, and he kept his promise. 
And for these people, this is, our, our, this is the only big theological term I'll use today. This is what we call a realized eschatology. For the people of God, the Israelites that entered into the land of promise, this was a realized eschatology. It was something that had been proclaimed and prophesied that would happen, and it happened for them. God said, I'm going to bring into a land of rest. Okay, it was complete. It was realized for them. But there's a, there's a little bit, and again, we can't get, we don't have time to get so far down into the details. This is why it's important to listen to extra stuff like cold pizza and make sure you show up to home group so you can have some of these extra discussions. So it's a realized eschatology. Um, God said it was going to happen. It happened, okay? We're still waiting on some things to be fulfilled. We're waiting on Christ to return. But in this sense, in the promised land rest, the author is saying it was realized, but not fully not completely. The promised land rest that God gave his people was a shadow and a type of something that was to come. It's the language of the already, not yet. We are saved, we are sealed in Christ, but we are being sanctified, we are being saved, and one day we will see him and be like him, all right? So that's, that's the already, not yet, and that's what the uh, Israelites are experiencing in the land of promise. Okay, God has given us rest, but it's not fully complete yet. It's a shadow. It's a type. Joshua is a, a shadow and a type of something to come, something better, something greater. The promised land rest is this shadow and type of something greater to come because Joshua, whose name means God's salvation, is the faithful warrior who leads his people into the promised land of rest, but he is still flawed, and he falls short, and he cannot fully keep the promises. This is why in verse 1 it says that the promise of entering his rest still stands. It wasn't complete. It was not final. There's a rest to come. Verse 8 says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a, uh, another day later on. This rest was not complete because as great of a leader and warrior as Joshua was, he still, still fell short. As victorious as that generation was over their enemies, they were still in slavery to the fear of death. That had not been dealt with yet. Delivered from Egypt, yes, but not out of the slavery of the fear of death. And as careful as they were to observe the law, they could not keep it. And thus, the blood of the sacrifices flowed continually. Thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices offered up year after year by the priest who worked continually offering up sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. The promised land rest of Joshua was only a shadow of a rest to come because, Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 4.4, 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from works as God did from his. Promised land rest, now this Sabbath rest he's talking about. In particular, the Sabbath rest that God himself enjoyed on the seventh day after he had created the world. God created everything, he looked and he said it is good, it is very good, and he rested from his work. Now the author is going to start to add this color to the promised land rest to help us understand this greater picture. Are you still following me a little bit? Good? Some of you look like you're bored out of your mind. Wake up. I've drinking nothing but coffee this morning. I haven't eaten anything. My heart's pounding. I'm ready to go. I might throw this pulpit right off the stage, all right? God's, I need some Sabbath rest. God's Sabbath rest. This other part that's mentioned this is referring to the Sabbath rest that I've already said that God enjoyed on the seventh day of creation. Um, now, this is one of those moments, okay, that we could take like a four-part sermon series to break down. But that's not what the author wants us to do. We can go and we can do that later. But he's making a point. He's just touching into this. And this, this idea of the Sabbath rest that God enjoyed 
after he created the earth, that, that's kind of lost on us in our Western culture, which is very productivity-driven. We are very prideful about our busyness. How you doing? How you been? Busy. I'm busy. We take such worth um, and, and identity in how busy we are. So we run, 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 run. Consequently, people don't want to stop and sit in silence and rest because then all the voices start entering their head about things they need to do. So they go and try to earn. They go and try to keep themselves busy. Always playing the radio, always running here and there. Busy, 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 because busy equals, in our culture, worth. But this is not what the scriptures teach at all. There's always a working, never a resting, always a going, right? Does this sound familiar? Like the sacrifices that were always being offered up? In the fourth commandment, God called his people to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Honoring the Sabbath in many ways is the foundation to understanding the truth stated in the New City Catechism in this question, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Jeffrey Wilson, an common English commentator, he says this, God established the pattern upon which man's life was to be built by following the cycle of his creative activity with his day of rest. Bit of a longer quote, but helps us understand this. Alistair Begg says on this point, in the rhythmical succession of six days of work and one ensuing day of rest, in each week, we see the principle on which the life of all humanity has been constructed. In this way, man is reminded that life is not an aimless existence, but a goal lies beyond. So God constructs the universe and makes it absolutely perfect and then rest purposefully pausing. In this, God sets a rhythmic cycle for all of humanity to follow. Therefore, when humanity denies the existence of a creator God and breaks the link between a personal God and his creation, then they will inevitably deny any significance to the days of creation. They will inevitably deny any rhythmic cycle that is part and partial of the structure of humanity, and they will thereby find themselves in the seasickness of a world without purpose where every day runs into every other day at nauseam. They will find that Hamlet was right when he looked out on this world and says, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem all the uses of this life because it's just another manic Monday. It's just another lousy Wednesday. It's just another boring Sunday, end quote. Sabbath is not simply about physical rest and relaxation. Get this. The Sabbath rest that God himself enjoyed was not a gateway to idleness. Instead, it was a purposeful pause, a rest that was fueled by the fact that his work was perfect, not necessarily because his work was done, but because his work was perfect. The Sabbath rest that God enjoyed was an expression of the fact that everything was taken care of. Everything was taken care of. I remember my grandfather talking about in his day how the businesses would close for Sunday. Even pagan Owned establishments closed their doors on Sunday to observe a truth that they didn't fully understand. And regardless, there was not enough business because believers were resting in church on the Lord's day. Because they were honoring this truth from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So you can watch and you can build. And we'll see here soon, hopefully, and I hope you've already heard from Pastor Ruff, you should watch, you should build. But unless the Lord is the one who is watching over, unless the Lord is the one who is building, then it's all in vain. That's why you can't do this in your own strength. You can't justify yourself. Verse 2 of that psalm says, It is in vain that they rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, always going, always running, always sacrificing. For he, speaking of God, he gives his beloved sleep. 
I can lay my head on my pillow after I have worked hard and done my job and been diligent to take dominion for my life and for the glory of God and his kingdom, and I can lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that my efforts as a husband, a father, a pastor, a a citizen of this country is in God's hands ultimately. I can rest in that. My rest is not in my bank account. My rest is not in my ability to be a perfect father, a perfect husband, a perfect pastor. You know what I have to tell myself before I get up to preach every Sunday? Jesus is better than perfect sermons, Jeff. He's better than perfect sermons because I like to judge myself on that scale. I should work hard to preach well. Yes, yes, yes. Like strive and toil. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who is the better preacher. And if God doesn't move in our midst, then we should just go home. If God is not here, then we should give up. When we understand God's Sabbath rest, the words of Jesus in John 15, 5 become more vibrant. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Unlike us, as I said earlier, this Sabbath rest wasn't such a foreign idea to the Jews of Jesus' day. This message brings, though, then and now hope to some, and it infuriates others. Why? Because what Jesus is saying in this, what God is saying in this, and what the author of Hebrews is saying in this, is that apart from God, you can do nothing. That rest is only found in Christ Jesus. Fulfillment, satisfaction, all these things are only found in him. There is no other. Only he can give the rest that mankind longs for. This is why Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You try to stuff the God-shaped void of your heart with all sorts of other things, and it's not gonna work. The Sabbath rest that God intended, though, cannot be realized by mankind because this blessed rest of God is unavailable apart from communion with God. You cannot have the rest that God offers without communion with the God and the Lord of the Sabbath. You cannot have it. When our first father, Adam, fell, the curse of endless toil, endless work, with no true rest, fell on all of humanity. Work was not a consequence of the curse. There was work before. Adam worked before the fall, and his work was purposeful for the glory of God, and thereby it was full of joy and fruitfulness. But after the fall, his work is a burdensome task, a sweaty task. Now all man beats the ground, but in the end, the ground beats man. You're gonna beat the ground, And in the end, it's going to beat you. That's the reality of mankind. There's this song, ain't no rest for the wicked, and money don't grow on trees. If you start mouthing it, you're so worldly, listening to the cage of the elephant. My goodness. I see you, Brian. There ain't no rest for the wicked, money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. Ain't nothing in this world for free. I know I can't slow down, I can't hold back, though you know I wish I could, or there ain't no rest for the wicked until they close their eyes for good. But that's not true. The first part is true. There ain't no rest for the wicked. The reality that the Scripture teaches us, the sad and serious reality that we should stand in fear of, and a respectful fear of, is that when the wicked close their eyes, there is no rest for them. Because if you are not found in Christ, rest never comes. When those who are not in Christ close their eyes for good, eternal unrest truly begins. Why? Because the Lord of the Sabbath is not there. He's not there. Listen, friend, man, you, 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 there may be many reasons for your unrest, but at its core, your unrest is the result of your own sin. And if you run from that truth in this life, you will most assuredly realize it in the next. You see people doing this? Some of you doing this right now? Bouncing your foot? You see people doing this? 
in restaurants and places. Stop that, by the way. But you do, you know, you always just tap it. What people are, people are not at ease. There's an unrest in people's heart. There's an anxiousness in people's heart. You ever struggle with grinding your teeth at night? Are you anxious? I've been there. You wake up with a headache, your jaws aching. Scripture says those who are not in Christ will be cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Endless unrest. Heed the warning. Take off your headphones and listen to the, in the event of an emergency speech. Consult the instruction manual. You understand the importance of Pastor Russie's last two sermons and this one today. Because if you do not heed the warnings that he spoke about, you will not enter this rest. That's what the author is saying. Don't make the same mistake that that generation made. What mistake? Hebrews 4.2. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They did not listen. It means they did not combine the message of God with faith in God. Do you understand that? They did not combine the message of God with faith in God. They believed there was a God, but they did not believe the things that he said. They did not act upon those things. This is why next week, Pastor Max is going to talk about here in chapter 4, the word of God cutting to the heart and being the MRI, the litmus test for our faith, our willingness to Submit to it and walk in obedience to it. Listen, this is where some of us are now. You believe there is a God, but you do not believe him. Sure, I believe there's a God, but you don't believe the things that he says. But it's because you don't act in obedience to the things that he says. You believe you don't trust. You have a false Sabbath rest. Your faith is not in God alone, but in God plus your effort. And that's why you can't find rest. And listen, though, here, here's the good news, though. Pastor Russ was talking about goats and sheep last week. It's people like, I don't know if I'm a goat or I'm a sheep. Here's the good news to you. Whether you're a goat or whether you're a sheep, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? That's the message to you. Like, I'm not sure if I'm a goat. Repent and believe. I'm not sure if I'm a sheep. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Reach out and you will be saved. You remember this story from Luke uh, 4, speaking about the Sabbath rest of Jesus that he brings to us. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Jesus comes in Luke 4 to the synagogue in his hometown in verse 18, Jesus gets the, uh, he, he gets the, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it's just such cool, cool language and imagery. And he opens to the place in the prophet Isaiah where it speaks about himself. So powerful. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He set me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And they begin to say to him, and he began to say to them, excuse me, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Wow, what good news. But you know how that story ends? You know how that story, beautiful story, but you know how it ends? Let me read it to you, verse 28 and 30. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off of the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What happened? We love these gracious words that are coming out of your mouth. This scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. We've been longing for this day, and here it is. But then it ends with them wanting to chuck him off the mountain. You know who else wanted to throw Jesus off a mountain? Satan. What happened? Well, in between the verses I read to you, this happened. The paraphrase, they liked the gracious words that Jesus said, but in between verses 22 and 28, he reminds them of their sin. In particular, he reminds them that when God spoke to them, they did not listen. 
Because he talks about the prophets that came before. And he said, your hardness of heart, because you did not listen to the message, to the warning, that's why God sent you into exile. And they ground their teeth at him. And they drove him out to throw him off of the cliff. To harden your heart, listen, to harden your heart is to make it dull and unresponsive to God and thus to strengthen it in disbelief. My prayer for you this morning is that you would humbly, humbly hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of it. The stuff you like, the stuff you don't like, the stuff you understand, the stuff you don't understand, the stuff that makes you sad, angry, and terrified. Because you will not find rest anywhere else. You cannot create Sabbath rest for yourself, but Jesus can. And you can have this Sabbath rest because Jesus says that he will give it to you. If you but would repent and turn from your sin. There's this present rest now that the author wants to kind of bring into us. He's taken us with this, this promised land rest that's kind of an already not yet. It's a shadow of something to come. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater David because David was one prophesying about this from Psalm 95. He's the greater king. There's this Sabbath rest that people can't enter into because of their sin, but this Sabbath rest can be found in Jesus Christ. A commentator says this, the Sabbath was a created ordinance which placed the day of rest at the end of six days of work. But when Adam sinned, it became impossible for man to attend, uh, to attain the rest of God by his own efforts. Therefore, this now required nothing less than a second creation. And by keeping the Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is established in the dying and raising of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God gladly acknowledge that their entrance into his rest depends entirely upon the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ. A new creation, a new Sabbath rest found in Christ. Hebrews 4, 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God rested from his. That day later on was Calvary. That day later on where it was opened up to you was found in Christ where the true and better Joshua passed through the dark waters of the Jordan, fought with and defeated his enemies, and gave his people rest. God's rest centered, his Sabbath rest, the end of creation, centered upon the recognition that his work of creation was now complete. And those who trust in Christ enter into God's rest through recognizing that his work of redeeming them from sin has also been completed in Christ. At the end of the six days of creation, God looked at his work and what did he say? It's good. It's very good. And that is what the author of Hebrews is getting out in this Sabbath rest thing. God said his work was good from the beginning. Everything was taken care of. It was perfect. And God looks now upon the life of Jesus, his perfect life, his substitutional death, the death of his son, and he declares it is very good, and he raises him from the dead. And if you are in Christ, this is what God says over you. You're going to see in a couple weeks here at the end of chapter 4 that this, is, this work of Christ is so good and this rest we are able to enter into is so complete that we are able to run into the throne room of God and ask for help in times of need. Hebrews 10, 14, for by the single offering, Jesus' single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Are you still awake? And put on your headphones. Haven't put out that dumb magazine? You got the instruction manual with you still? Cool. So, in light of this rest that is offered to you in Christ, come to me, all you who are weary and burdensome and heavy laden. What does Jesus say? I will give you what? Rest. What else does he say? Take my what? A yoke upon you. 
Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. You burdensome, are you weary? Is there any burdensome and weary people here in the congregation this morning? I am. And Jesus says, come, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Whether that's salvation rest, you were a goat, and he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Or whether you're a sheep and you're in need of rest, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And what does Jesus then turn around and give people who he says he will give rest? He gives them farm tools. Take this yoke. I thought rest was kicking back and chilling. What are you talking about? Like, I thought God got me, right? What, what? You said I got to work for this? Yeah. I've already done the work. Let me give you the proper tools now how to go out and to plow into the next field for God's glory. God gives you rest in Christ, and then he gives you the tools to go forward and to live a brand new life for his glory and for the good of others. So, strive in light of this rest, strive to enter his rest, Hebrews 4, 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the authors established these ideas of rest, this promised land rest, the Sabbath rest, and all these things are realized in Christ. This rest still remains for you to enter by putting faith in Christ. So do not harden your heart. Do not be confused. Believe God. Believe what he says, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The call is the same when you put on the bib number, if you've ever run a race before. The call is the same when you first pin on the bib number and get in the race. Repent and believe the gospel. And the call is the same to those who have been in the race for a long time. They're like, they're like mile 13, and they're running a full marathon. Repent and believe the gospel. Keep running. Keep striving. Keep pressing forward. What the author is saying to us here is, Trust and obey, like the hymn writer says. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, faith and repentance. So in rest, strive. Practice restful running. Keep on keeping on. You guys remember Jerry Brinker? Remember him? Get parts? That's what Jerry always used to say. Keep on keeping on, Jeff. Keep on keeping on. The commentator says here, we should note that these warnings are misunderstood when they are thought to teach that the true believer may fall away and be lost. Just as accidents are avoided by obeying the road signs which are put up for our safety, so we are preserved from the dangers of our pilgrimage by paying heed to those warnings which are annexed to the purpose, or excuse me, to the promise of our salvation. Therefore, all who know the plague, listen, therefore, all who know the plague of their own hearts will never deem it safe to dispense with what God considers to be necessary for their spiritual safety. So when the scripture says that we should strive to enter this rest, it is not saying that we have to earn our salvation. If you are misunderstanding this, it's because, quite frankly, you need to read your Bible more. Right? We interpret scripture with scripture. The word of God is not incorrect. It does not contradict itself. Unlike human authors, when we misunderstand the word of God, it's on us. Because his word is perfect. These warnings are not saying that you have to strive to get this rest and then strive to keep it in and of yourselves. No. The striving to, to enter his rest is emphasizing the need for perseverance. Your salvation is not based on your own good works, but on the good work of the great high priest and his sacrifice. Got to keep going back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Keep going back to chapter 1. Anything that believers can do to please God comes from his working within them. This is where we understand the importance of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The reason, though, that we are persevering is because that God is preserving us. We're not running in our own strength. No, we are running in his strength. Listen, the opposite of perseverance is disobedience. Like that faithless generation from Exodus. We don't do good works in order to earn God's favor. No, we put our faith in the perfect work of Christ and therefore do good works and run hard. And some of you need to start running a little faster, okay? 
Some of you need to pick it up a little bit. Some of you need to go to a more sustainable pace because you're like, what a great runner I am. <laughs> Slow down a little bit maybe and run alongside somebody who is pacing well and learn from them. This is all through the Bible, folks. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained. Paul is saying this. Or that I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Why do I press on to make it my own? Why does Paul press on to make it his own? Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the only reason I want to do it. Because corpses just rot in the ground. They don't run. But God gave life to you, and he said, run. That's the only reason you're able to run. It's not in your own strength. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, leaning into the tape, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize, the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are what? Mature think this way. Those who are aware that we're flying through the air at 30,000 feet, that speeds up to 600 miles an hour in a bus with rockets on it. Things could go bad. Let's make sure we're paying attention to the warning signs so we know what to do. What does that red light mean? I don't know. Maybe I should have paid attention. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. I've been a pastor for a while now, and people come to me like, why does it say I should work it out with fear and trembling? I thought I'm supposed to rest. Just keep reading. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to get to Hebrews 12 soon. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Jesus, the what? The founder and the perfecter. He founded it, and he's perfecting it, and he will see you home safely one day if you are in him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus gives us weapons for warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So true believers that sound like sheep, do sheepy things, and they fear the Lord, and they know the deceitfulness of sin, and they feel the pull of worldly ideologies, and they feel and know that Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. They don't have their heads in the clouds. They don't have their headphones on. They got their nose stuck in some crap. They know the dangers. They know that when you, I remember this one brother that got saved and he had led just a life of absolute craziness. And when he became a believer, I remember him saying often in the first several months of him becoming a believer, he was like, this is so much harder than being a pagan. Like, this is so much harder. In that, Satan's after me. I feel the pulls. I don't want to do it. Before I just did it. And I don't want to do it now, and it's so much harder in that because I feel like I, I'm in a war. I'm like, brother, you are in a war. Because Satan hates you because, who is, because of the person who has claimed you. So strive. Fight. By God's grace, he is still striving, and he is still fighting. And by God's grace, I'll see him in heaven one day. We want to say, well done. Let's cast our crowns at the one who got us here. It's those who listen to the, in the event of an emergency speech, consult the instruction manual. Those are the ones who wake up every single day and sing, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they do what? They follow me. My grandfather raised sheep. He was a good shepherd. He took care of them. He protected them from the, they're called koi dogs. They were a mixture of coyotes and, um, and like domestic dogs. Some analogies there, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that. He had a 30-06 to protect his sheep with, and he was not afraid to use it. He didn't hesitate to use it. Because those dogs were 
unlike regular coyotes, they were much more bold because they knew how to navigate around the house. They were kind of used to it. Some of them even kind of looked like domestic dogs, but they were ravenous wolves. I remember Grandpa would walk the fence line of his farm in Connorsville, Indiana, with that 30 6 on his shoulder. And I remember being with him often. He'd be like, he, calls me, he always called me Jeff Honey. Jeff Honey, there's a koi dog. And he would just set up on a post, and there would be a dog way out. I'm like, how do you know it's a koi dog? He's like, I'm not taking any chances. Boom! Just not taking any chances because he was a good shepherd that wanted to protect his sheep. But one other thing that my grandfather did to protect the sheep was that he put this giant floodlight on the barn that was closest to the house by the barnyard. And I remember vividly this picture of 25 to 30 sheep all piled on top of each other, crammed together underneath this floodlight that the shepherd had put up for them. So they would be protected. You see, the koi dogs were afraid to come close to the light because it was too close to the shepherd's house. But every now and then, I remember when I would stay the summers with Grandpa, we'd go out and walk the fence, and there would be a sheep who had wandered off at night out from underneath the light, away from the flock, away from the shepherd's care, and gotten eaten by the wolves, torn to shreds. John 1 1 John 1, 5 through 7, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, if we stay continually under the protection of the good shepherd, knowing that he is the one who protects, he is the one that fights our battles, we don't lie. The truth is in us. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So those who are in Christ strive to enter his rest because they understand Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, yes. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So therefore I run. I strive. The author is painting this picture of rest, promised land rest, Sabbath rest, the rest we enter into through Christ, and there is a future rest. There's an already not yet that we right now who are in Christ are waiting for. Is that future rest in heaven. Revelations 14, 13 says that blessed are the dead who have died in the Lord. Not blessed are those who have died apart from the Lord because unrest is now theirs forever, but blessed are those who have died in the Lord. They will rest from all their labors. So we must strive, friends, until our faith one day becomes sight. Strive. Or another way to put this is make every effort. Know the plague of your own heart Understand the deceitfulness of sin. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. On that day when Christ comes, people will be found as they are. Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen then to the words long written down when the man comes around. This is why Christians sing this. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Are you making every effort? Are you concerned that the ones around you are making every effort to enter this rest, to understand this, that their cry continually is to walk in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ? What does striving, making every effort look like? It means like reading your Bible. 
like being committed to the spiritual disciplines. It looks like faithfully showing up to Sunday gatherings and home groups and DNA doxes. It looks like confessing your sins to one another. It looks like going to your brother who is sinning and seeking to gain him back by calling him to repentance. It looks like church discipline. It looks like not blaming other people for your own problems. It looks like sticking with a church, even if that church maybe seems to have some problems and considering that maybe the reason it has some problems is because you're there. Even if you don't feel connected, even if you don't feel like you have a place here. Listen, this is not a social club. This is a place where we learn combat for war because it's life and death. I wish I could get that across to you. Some of you men want some, your church to be some sorority club. Yeah, I know that's the one the girls go to. I don't feel connected. Listen, give me men who are listening to the in the event of an emergency speech and consulting the instruction manual for themselves. I want to fly with those guys. You know why? Because in the event of an emergency, they know what to do. They know the truth. Men who are asking first to be in line to fight the enemy. You know, in 2021 and 22, our church found itself in a bit of an emergency. And men stepped up who had been paying attention to the word of God. And they were able to say, this is a counterfeit lion. And this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there was moments there, it was choose this day who you will serve. And those, many of you who are still in our midst here, are ones who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you making every effort? May I just say this? It was a, during that time, it was a absolute joy to be able to walk through the fire with three of these men who I have had such a privilege to serve with, the other elders that serve with me. Because regardless of their feelings, they saddled up anyway and rode out because their faith and trust was not in themselves, but was in Jesus. You know, that, um, you know that scene? The movie's pretty much crap, but the book's a masterpiece, The Hobbit, right? So if you, don't, if you like the movies, and I just said that, come at me, whatever. The movies are just too Disney-fied. But there's this one scene. Um, there's this one scene where the dwarves are fighting the orc army and the dwarves are outnumbered and their back is to the mountain. You know that scene? And like the, the hordes of the orcs are coming down upon them. And Thorin Oakenshield, the, the king of the dwarves, he's been in the mountain. And all of a sudden, the, the horn sounds and Thorin comes running out with his mighty men. And he's like at the very front with his sword. And he runs through the midst of the dwarves who are standing there fighting. And what is the cry? To the king! To the king! And they all rally to the king and go to defeat the enemy. And that is what we are doing as we are faithfully making every effort in the reading of Scripture, in the on our knees in prayer, understanding the deceitfulness of sin, in church discipline, in doxa DNA, in home groups, in confronting one another about sin. That's what we're saying to each other. Brother, sister, to the king! Don't get distracted. He is better. To the king. And there are those times in some of those old war movies that my boys and I like to watch with the swords and the blood and everything flying where someone is not the king because the king hasn't showed up yet. So what does he say? Rally to me. Why? Because he represents the king. He represents the values of the king. Let's have people like that in our midst. Rally to me. Paul, imitate me as I follow Christ. Let's be those kind of people, making every effort, every effort to the king. I'll close with this. The title of this message, um, it was really hard. I was like, in the event of an emergency, that'd be a cool message title. I don't like to title my messages because then it boxes me in too much. But the title of this message is Homeward Bound because how many of you have seen the movie Homeward Bound? If you haven't... Okay, here's, I'm not joking. So go rent, Karen, you can help rent that movie or somewhere to get it, right? 
That's what our kids should watch during the, uh, the uh, babysitting time during home group. You need to watch Homeward Bound. I'm just checking to make sure it's good. Yes, I think it's good. All right? <laughs> cool. Here's why. And this, with, with this we end, okay? You know, the author's given us these analogies, and so this sermon's been full of a lot of different analogies, I know. So in, in the story Homeward Bound, you get the story, and if you, have, if you don't know the story, then I'll explain it to you, pagans. So um, there's these three dogs, Shadow, Chance, I'm sorry, uh, not three dogs. The, the cat wants to be a dog, right? Nobody, care, nobody cares about the cat, let's be honest, all right? We weren't that happy when the cat made it home. All right, so you got Shadow, the golden retriever. You got Chance, I think he's like some kind of American bulldog. Dave, you can correct me later. Um, and he's got the cat Sassy, right? I don't know, some furry thing, all right? Kind of looks like Matt's dogs. And, and, and they, they all get lost, right? Big story is they all get lost. They get separated from their owners. And, and they have to make this long journey across the wilderness, over mountains and, and through the river, and, and they have to face this mountain lion. Chance gets hit in the face by a porcupine. All these things. The pound gets them, and they have to get loose. All these things. And the family is longing for them to come home, and maybe they're just going to make it. I think they, they, they heard from somebody that somebody had seen some animals, and they're like, oh, I think they're going to make it. I think they're going to make it home. And all this grand story kind of culminates in they're almost home. That song we sing, almost home, we're almost home, almost home. And they're going through this railroad area, and it's kind of muddy, and they've been through so many adventures. Shadow's been a great leader for them, the old wise golden retriever. They've been through so much. You're like, home free, man. They're almost there. And Shadow's going across this um, piece of wood that's over what he does not know is a pit, and the, the, the wood plank breaks. And Shadow falls into this huge, muddy pit. And, and Sassy and Chance come back over and they look down and in this muddy pit and Shadow's down there in the bottom. They're like, oh, Shadow, are you okay? And he's like, I don't know. I think I don't, my paw might be broken. I'm not sure. Like, well, try to climb out. So if you know the story, he tries to climb out. He tries to climb out. Some of you are starting to cry. He starts to try to climb out and he slides back down. Try again. Tries again. Tries again. Try again. Tries again. That's what we're doing for each other, by the way. As we encourage one another to strive to enter this rest, we're saying, try again, try again, come on. And then Shadow, he's tried, he's tried, he's tried, he just keeps slipping back down, he can't get out. And so what does he do? He, he stops and he, and he lays down. You know what Chance says? And this is what we're really saying to each other. Chance says, no, 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 don't lay down. Don't give up. Don't give up. Friends, I have seen... In my past pastorate, people that have given up. I've said, don't give up. Now, they're in the hands of God, I know, ultimately. But they sure don't look like they're striving. They're not doing sheepy things. Don't give up. Don't you lay down. Keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. You know how the story ends? The family's there. I think it's like Thanksgiving and all wearing these big baggy like 90s sweaters and they're all out there and they're throwing the football whatever and all of a sudden the little boy hears a dog barking and he's like chance and they're like oh no it can't be chance chance and here he comes right and you're just like ah chance is there and he comes flying over the hill running and his jowls are flopping he comes running up and he's so happy to be there and then here comes the cat and i kind of guess we're happy for the cat and she's running up and she's calling the name of her uh, her owner like hope hope oh, there's so many types of christ in this movie he's like hope 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 that's how some of you are going to enter heaven like i hope i'm there i'm over there and then you cross like i'm here she gets home all right but there's no shadow you know the story there's no shadow. Like the kids, one kid's got chance, the little girl's got sassy, and then the older boy Peter looks over the hill and there's no shadow. What does he say? He says, it was too old. It was too far. It was too far. And he starts to walk back and all of a sudden, here he comes. I told you I'm gonna cry, Russ. Here he comes and there's shadow. And he's covered in mud and he's limping and there's shadowed. Oh, Peter, I love you. And he runs to Peter. The dogs can talk, by the way, uh, and cats, if you hadn't caught that. Use your imagination, folks. Come on. And he, he runs to his master, and he's made it, and he's covered in mud, and, and he's so happy, he's limping, and he made it. He made it. A chance busted over that hill, and that's how some are going to enter heaven. Full bore. Praise God for that. I hope that's me. 
Lean it into the tape. Some of you could be like, hope, 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 and you made it through. Praise God. Some of you could come limping and muddy and bloodied into heaven. And if, if you know this movie, you know what I got to go back to. I know this is such a corny analogy, but I was up in my office studying for this sermon, and I was just weeping on the desk, just like, this is such a good thing. Because you know that when Chance is telling Shadow, come on, Shadow, get out of that pit. Don't you lay down. And that's what we're doing for each other. But then Shadow lays down, and what does Chance do? He gets down in the pit with him. He gets down in the pit with him. And we need to be willing to do that for each other. But here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. He gets down in there. I'm going to tell you the good news of the gospel uh, through the words of Chance, the dog. He jumps down in there. And you know what Shadow says to Chance? And this is where some of you are right now. Shadow says to Chance, do you think it's easy for me to admit that I can't do it? Because Shadow had been real strong. He'd overcome a lot of things. And in this moment, he couldn't get out of that pit. Do you think it's easy for me to admit that I can't do it? And that's where some of you need to be right now and say, I can't do it. Lord Jesus, help me. And I kid you not, as corny as I'll get out, but you know what Chance says? He says, I want you with me. I love you, Shadow. Psalms 40, 1 through 4, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. And he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And he has set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure, making them secure so I can walk in confidence. I can run in confidence. He has made them secure. And he's put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, or to those who go astray after lies. Martin Luther got it. If we in our own strength could fight, our striving would be losing. If we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And he must win the battle. Let's strive and fight knowing that one has fought for us. Father, we thank you that there is rest found in Christ. And right now in this moment, oh, how we want to add to the work, the perfect work of Jesus to try to find some kind of a rest. Oh, how we want to make excuses for ourselves and blame it on others, the reasons that we are not doing well. We are neglecting all the good tools that you have given us to strive well. Weak is our effort of our heart and cold our warmest thought. But when we see you as you are, we'll praise thee as we ought. And I pray right now that we would see you fully. We would see ourselves and our sin. And then would you show us our Savior for your glory and for our joy. Amen.